from the sound of the music this morning, I don't, it doesn't sound like anyone lost an hour of sleep last night. Um, I would just, let's just have a singspiration today. Some of you actually sounded like you were shouting when you were singing. Were you? Good. That was fantastic. Super encouraged today. Um, uplifted. And glad to see you all. Um, John chapter 6. Let's continue on this morning in our study of this gospel. I would just like to thank you for obviously preparing your hearts for worship this morning. <laughs> you can can always tell if people's hearts are prepared by how they worship in song. And um, so thank you for that. And um, for taking time to do that. Let's pray together. Father, we need your help as we investigate the perfect law of liberty. Help us to be faithful hearers and doers of your word. Lord, we, we lift up all in our community that are preaching your word faithfully this morning. We pray, Lord, for their spirit filling and for the spirit of God to, to work among their people as they preach, as we ask you to do the same here among our flock. We lift up, Lord, faithful preachers of your word all over our country on this Lord's day that the word of God would have free course and rapid advance and you would protect all from wicked and unreasonable men. That both here and abroad, people would leave local church worship services more joyful than when they first arrived, having heard from heaven and knowing just exactly what to do as they walk with you in the course of their week. We ask again for your help here this morning in Christ's name. Amen. Let's begin reading in verse number 16, John chapter 6. Now when the evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, and after getting into the boat, they started to cross the sea to Capernaum. It had already become dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea began to be stirred up because a strong wind was blowing. Then when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near to the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to, him, said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. So they were willing to receive him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Today we'll study together the fifth of Jesus' signs or miracles here in the Gospel of John. We've considered the sign of him changing water to wine, healing the nobleman's son, and that from a distance. Healing the lame man of 38 years at the pool of Bethesda. Feeding of 5,000, as we said last week, 25,000 and. I was remiss, and I forgot to tell you that when they say 5,000, they're usually identifying heads of household, not including their wives and multiple children, so the guess is about 25,000. 
And then we come to this sign of Jesus walking on the water. Well, the feeding of the 5,000 was considered to be the greatest of Jesus' miracles just because of the mere size of the crowd and, and due to the fact that he performed it at the zenith of his public Galilean ministry. The sign we preach today is the only one where there are really four miracles in one sign story. Matthew 14 and Mark chapter 6 are the other two gospels that record this miracle. Both write more extensively according to the purpose as to why each wrote their gospel. When you compare each side by side, you'll see four miracles surrounding one main sign. John records two of the four. So as we unpack this story today, this sign story, if you will, miracle story, we'll compare with Matthew and Mark and discover the other two. We know John writes of seven major signs or miracles with a purpose. His purpose is to demonstrate that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, so that you might believe, and in believing you might have life through his name. John has an additional way in which he writes. He usually places a discourse of teaching before or after each of the seven major miracles that he writes about. Most good theologians believe that the feeding of the 5,000 and the sign that we study today are connected to the bread of life discourse, which we'll study the next several times we're together in chapter 6. In these two signs, Jesus has taught that God provides bread and safety to his people. God is provider. Jesus is the enfleshed Jehovah Jireh. These two signs clearly direct our attention to John 6.35, where Jesus proclaims, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. We'll invest the next several times together on that discourse. But for today, John will clearly demonstrate for us that God does provide safety and security for his people. It can be a difficult task outlining a miracle narrative. I suppose if you try hard enough, you can outline any passage, but at times it can be much more efficient, if you will, to walk through a sign like we did last week with no particular outline given. But today's sign, um, having read through it and studied its parallel accounts, um, an outline began to emerge for me which made understanding Jesus as the Son of God uh, much more effectual for me. So today I'd like to divide this very short passage in the Gospel of John chapter 6 and understanding Jesus' person in three different ways, okay? And first of all, I would like to understand his personality or his person itself, the divine person of our Savior. And then I'd like to study together the divine posture in which Jesus stands, if you will, uh, in the performance of this particular miracle. And then I'd like to 
discuss his patience. His patience, his person, his posture, and his patience. The first two points, you're going to have to be patient. They're a bit longer than the third. All right. Nonetheless, we should never forget that each member of the Godhead is a person. All three have personality. Jesus is a person, and he is the indivisible demonstration of the person of God in a human body. The first thing that strikes me about the person of Jesus over the last few weeks we've been together is how much he cares for the spiritual, emotional, and physical well-being of his people, particularly of his disciples, and of course himself. If you would, on your own time, I would just go back and read through the last several situations John writes about and see how many times Jesus leads his band of followers to a secluded place for rest or even, even for prayer. We'll see that he does the same thing for himself in our passage today when we compare parallel counts. Jesus knew that active ministry can take a physical, emotional, and spiritual toll on any person who is sincerely involved. He knew there needed to be physical rest and emotional, spiritual refreshment from seasons of prayer for all who faithfully follow him. I believe this needs to be understood and respected by all who are here. I do believe the Lord Jesus is setting an example here for us to follow as persons. Ministry opportunity can and will distract you away from time you should pray and rest. Pray on that if you would. For those who are younger servants of the Lord, seek to learn from those who are older here and still active serving in the ministry. Learn from their missteps and successes on the matter being discussed. Beg God for a forward balance in this regard. There are some here where life itself can be overbearing and distractive to prayer and physical rest. And you're not able to serve the Lord actively besides just attending services. I would say that you have the greatest adjustments of life ahead of you. Jesus and his disciples, frail and weak as his disciples were, found their way to worship and into service of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. We all know that life is quite layered. I also know that the grace of God in Christ Jesus is able to direct you towards worship and service among the people of God here at Grace Church. I'm also aware that some of you have come from places of worship and service where you've been burnt out or in a very real sense burned alive emotionally and spiritually. I'm just trying to say that we would all do well to sit and meditate on Jesus's pattern of personal refreshment and prayer that he takes with his disciples. Active worship and service among the people of God will be exhausting without prayer and relaxation. 
In other words, some get worn out and spent, not because they're too busy in worship and service, but simply because they haven't been disciplined in prayer and rest. If we try to do the Lord's work without prayer and rest, you will get worn out. Even if you're not doing too much. Any ministry without prayer and rest will prove to be too much for anybody. But the only way we can determine if we're truly balanced in our approach to worship and service is if we're spending time with God in personal prayer and rest. And in that environment, God directs your steps and allows your load to become more balanced and your goals more achievable. Many of you, if not all of you, have probably been on a flight in the last year or so. Uh, I was on a flight not long ago, and it was a smaller plane. Um, some of these more regional jets, they're tiny. Um, it's very difficult to even get underneath the door into some of these that just have one seat on one side and two on the other. Uh, let alone make my way through the fuselage uh, and then sit in this seat made for one of Santa's elves. <laughs> I was, I found my way to my seat and um, one of the flight attendants kindly came back and uh, apparently they knew my name from looking at the roster and they said, Mr. Potter, would you be would you be so kind to move to the other side of the plane so that the weight of the plane <laughs> can, can be balanced so we can be safe for takeoff? <laughs> Why are you laughing? <laughs> and um, I'm assuming she couldn't find anyone bigger than me so they came to me and assuming my weight by my size I um, sheepishly crept over to the opposite side of the plane so that we all could be safe uh, well I was thankful that that pilot uh, in the cockpit was doing their homework even down to what would seem to us to be a a silly, insignificant measure of weight, of balance in the fuselage. They did their homework by themselves up front. And it was necessary to keep us all safe. I would just encourage you um, to do your homework, so to speak, when it comes to safely and securely doing personal ministry in addition to worship with God's people. It's a good, necessary thing to do. And when you read all three accounts of Jesus and this miracle, you'll find each gospel writer, Matthew, Mark, and John, adding essential elements to personal spiritual, emotional care 
of both Jesus and his disciples. And I would, I would encourage you to do that. So the text says he sends his disciples to the shore to get in a boat and head to Capernaum. And at the same time, he points them to the boat. He's kindly reminding thousands that had gathered and had been fed to depart and go back home. Jesus is really directing traffic. The miracle's done. The teaching is done. The disciples are absolutely exhausted. And Jesus, being the divine person he was, says, okay, disciples, you don't interact with people. You go to the boat and head to Capernaum. And then the Bible texts tell us that he was there and he remained present until all 25,000 people had been directed by him back to their homes. Now, I could imagine that could be quite difficult. It's a wonderful thing as a pastor standing out in the parking lot greeting all of you as we leave on Sundays. It's wonderful shaking hands with you as we go out the door, but there's only some 400 or 500 of us. And it takes time. Every person that you shake a hand with has a need, right? And they would love to probably, and I think we would all love to just sit and have a conversation in a time of prayer with every person. Well, hopefully we're doing that with each other when we get together. Um, but could you imagine um, the personal skill it took the Lord Jesus Christ to dismiss 25,000 people that he had just individually ministered to? How much personal decorum must he have had? How much graciousness? How much kindness? How much love? for each person to say, but there's one more thing, Jesus. There, there's, just, there's just one more thing, Lord. Now go home. It'll be okay. What did Jesus know? Well, he knew he was going to meet back up with that crowd back on the other side of the lake at Capernaum to continue ministering to them. Jesus knew that. They didn't. But nonetheless, I think there's much we can learn from his personhood here in relationship to these things. So again, go back on your own time. In chapter 6 and verse 3, and again before the feeding of the 5,000, now after the feeding of the 5,000, we find Jesus and his disciples finding their way to rest and seclusion and prayer. Please do not seek to minister without prayer and rest. Okay? All right, well, that's enough on his person for now. Let's look at Jesus' divine posture. And when I mention the word posture, I'm not speaking of physical posture or kneeling or, or lying down to rest. We're speaking of his position or his stance he took with his disciples and those he had just served. Much to learn from Christ's posture here for me and for, for all of us, I trust. We must remember that Jesus rushed into the mountain after he had fed the people because they were forcing themselves upon him to make him king. Remember verse 15 last week? To make him king. Jesus took a stand here in our context. All of us today are so glad that he did, right? 
Without the shedding of his blood, there could be no remission of our sins. Jesus knew he must be the Lamb of God that had come to take away the sins of the whole world first. He knew in time he would be king of kings over all the earth. So with conviction, he rushes to the mountain away from the people seeking to forcibly make him their ruler. Jesus did not come into the world to politically set the world in order. He was completely resolved in his own mind, in his own heart, that that would be his reality in the kingdom to come. He did not come to set the world even socially or academically or financially in order. He came into the world to save sinners of whom this guy is chief. And I'm so glad he did. I'm so glad he came as savior and not king first. I tell you this morning as his disciples, our posture must be the same as his. Friends, as much as we would like to clean up all this world as falling into hell trying to achieve, we can't do it. But there's one thing we can do and that should consume our lives and that is the preaching, teaching, and living of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ among us and in our community. 1 John chapter 2, 2 Timothy chapter 3, among many other texts, teach us that the world is passing away and its lusts. You can't try to clean it up and preach the gospel of Jesus Christ and live it at the same time. You can't. It's like... It's like trying to plug I don't know. What's the dam out in Vegas called? You ever been there? Right? You ever walked across it? You ever looked down? You ever imagine a leak coming in that dam if you're standing on top of it? I think that way, and aren't weird? Right? I cause my own fear. Could you imagine a leak coming in that dam and then trying to plug that leak with your finger? It's going to be okay. You know what that's like when we try to politically, socially, academically, financially fix this world? It's like trying to put your finger in a dam. It's hell-bent on going to hell. It can't help itself, friends. So we enter our posture of coming into this world is the same as Christ's. We come and have a burden for these lost ones that can't help themselves, but just... <laughs> be wickedness. I 
We should weep and pray for the sinning alcoholic, be burdened for and pray for the sexually perverted among us and around us. Beg God's mercy on those who seek to promote the slaughtering of the unborn and create a completely immoral social order on this earth. Don't fight it, pray for them. Go reach them. Have mercy on them. Have pity on them. Love them. Only Jesus can change them. My friends, Jesus' anger on earth, when it was put on display, was against the religious ones who sought to make him king, who wanted him to change the social, political, academic, and financial order of the world. Set it straight, Jesus. Boom, just do it. One sentence from your mouth could call millions of angels along your side and just clean up the earth of all of its filth. Jesus knew that wouldn't work. There needed to be a sacrifice for sin. And he was the lamb that came. So my friends, let us embrace the posture of the Savior. Get away into a high mountain, rest, pray, as Matthew reports that Jesus had done again after sending his disciples to the boat. There Jesus and you can direct our hearts towards God first and then towards the greatest spiritual need of all men next, which is forgiveness of their sins. We never find Jesus second-guessing his posture towards God or towards those who need him as Savior. Jesus was completely secure as to who he was and why he had come. And we need to be growing towards the same realization as his people as to why God's saved us and what we're supposed to be doing. So, while we find Jesus again up in the mountain praying, we find his disciples in a real struggle. What else do we realize about the posture of our Savior? Remember, John writes later than the other three gospel writers, and he only adds details that are necessary to his purpose of writing about Jesus. So while Jesus is praying, a great wind comes from the west and rushes down upon the Sea of Galilee, which lies some 650 feet below the Mediterranean sea level. The disciples are halfway across the sea to their destination of Capernaum. They are literally in the middle of the lake, they're being battered by waves, and they're terribly frightened. They're making no progress. Their, boy, their boat is pointing west from where the harsh winds come. They are facing east, where, from, where they've come from. They're more than ever in this journey, feverishly rowing, and multiplying the amount of times their oars are hitting the water, and the more they row, the less progress they seem to be making. I'm sure there's a little arguing and frustration going on at the same time. And in the middle of the chaos, they see something. The gospel writers tell us that they believe they've seen a ghost. Have you ever seen a ghost? Don't answer that. 
they believed they'd seen one. Well, we all know that this is Jesus, and Mark tells us that Jesus was just taking a leisurely walk on the water as if he had intended to pass right by him. Fascinating addition from Mark. People tell us that Lake Erie is the second most easily irritated body of water in the world because of its shallow depths and course of winds across her. Imagine being out on the lake in 14 to 16 foot swells on a boat about 16 to 20 foot in length with just oars, no life jackets, and no 200 horsepower Evan Rude motor. You're frantic. You're pretty confident that you're going to die trying to give a few more minutes to your life. You glance around at the same time of giving up all hope and you see somebody. I'd imagine you'd yell out even though you were scared because you couldn't help yourself and maybe this person you saw could help you and help easily uh, falls from your lips and this person who you see continues to walk by your boat and greets you with a smile and says I'm just out for a stroll this evening good evening to you how are things going with a sweet smile, he continues to pass on by the boat and say, you're going to be just fine. Have a good night. And as, he was, as if he was walking on solid ground, he just continues his leisurely promenade across Lake Erie. Jesus is very confident in who he is and what he's about to do. The disciples frantically continue well, Jesus, we're about to capsize here, and we've drifted off course, and we're pretty scared. It's between 3 and 5 in the morning, gospel writers tell us. So we've been at this for about eight hours now, ghost Jesus, and you're just going to tip your hat and say good evening. Everything seems to be okay with you, Lord. Aren't you going to help us? And Jesus says what? Literally, this is what the grammar says. Stop being afraid, I am. You that know your Bibles well know exactly what that means, don't you? Stop being afraid, I am. Wow. I remember back in Job chapter 9 when we were studying that book together and Job is saying that there's no arbitrator between God and man and he goes on with these words in verse number 3 of Job chapter 9, if one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him once in a thousand times, wise in heart and mighty in strength, who has defiled him without harm. It is God who removes the mountains. They know not how. 
when he overturns them in his anger? Who shakes the earth out of its place and its pillars tremble? Who commands the sun to shine and sets a seal upon the stars? Who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea? I could, I could imagine that when Jesus says, stop being afraid, I am, that this passage of the earliest writer of Scripture immediately comes to their mind. The I am is stomping on these waves. Everything's truly under control from his perspective. And at this very point, everything grows mysteriously quiet. The only things being heard are the howling winds and the crashing waves. Those men knew what Jesus had just said. I am the self-existent God of eternity. I am your creator. I am the creator of the heavens and the earth and the waters upon which I trample. Just be still and know that I'm God. So he demands that they not be afraid. Friends, it's a present active imperative. He demands it. What God commands, he demands. Stop being afraid. I am. You see, Jesus had known the dilemma when he was in the mountain praying. There's actually a famous painting that you can find on the internet showing Jesus in peaceful prayer juxtaposed to his disciples battling in the storm. It's quite a helpful visual to be sure. The Son of God is always aware. As we said last week, he's always omnicapable to settle and to assist. And as the disciples realize it's Jesus, Matthew records that Peter asked if Jesus could welcome him into the waters. And Jesus says, sure, come on out, Matthew and, or, and, and Peter. And, and, and Peter steps out takes a couple steps in confidence, then begins to sink, and Jesus in his mercy does what? He reaches down. Oh, Peter, you of little faith. As Jesus holds Peter's hand, he turns towards the boat, and in a moment, they're both inside the boat. The gospel writers tell us that they all fell down and worshiped Jesus as the Son of God. And as they worship, two things happen in a moment. The storm stops, and immediately they're on shore, right where the Lord had told them to go in Capernaum. There's your four miracles in one sign story. Jesus walks on water. Peter is allowed to do the same. The storm is called, and all are on shore in a moment, ready to minister again. Jesus' posture is to provide safety for his people as they seek to do his will. And his posture is to do that will in an undistracted way. And we conclude this morning with Jesus' patience. 
You know, Mark records that the disciples' hearts were hardened after feeding the 5,000. We can assume that they were hardened because it had been a long day and Jesus was extending the day helping people who didn't really have altruistic motives for being with him anyway. I'm sure they're pretty frustrated with Jesus. And even though he had fed them to overflowing, they're still not realizing who he was and why he had come. Jesus is so patient with their stubbornness and lack of patience with him. He's patient with their discerning him to be a ghost before himself. I mean, think about that. He's patient with their fear. He's patient with their lack of faith. He's patient to place them right where he intended them to go to keep on serving him. Jesus is just patient, but he's always patiently forward. Jesus is enough for all of us, spiritually, emotionally, physically. As we seek to do his will, his way, and I would ask you, is he enough for you in all those ways? Just want you to think about it. He is the I am in all those ways for each of us, or he's not. And we would all agree that he is. Seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Learn of him spiritually, emotionally, and physically as you seek to do his will. And love his patience. So we learn something of the person of Jesus today as to his pace, as to his principled habits of prayer, relaxation, and determined ministry. Do we learn something of his posture? Do we understand his posture and his as to his purpose for coming? Wasn't to save the world socially, morally, academically, financially. He came to save and his posture was also to assist those who were scared. And do I understand his patience? I think we have a little bit better grasp on each of these things today. I hope as we depart at this moment in a word of closing prayer, we'll be able to aptly apply to our lives that which the Lord would have us do per our text this morning. Everyone in this room, from just this sign story alone, I'm confident if we listened well, there's something that each of us can apply to our own lives for when we wake up tomorrow morning. Some of you are still way too distracted as to your posture towards this old world and what you're trying to fix in it way too distracted. Some of us that are sincere in our faith 
need to be directed back to the singular reason why you were granted faith. And that's to live the mission of Jesus Christ. Some of you are really stressed out in ministry, not because you're doing too much ministry, because you're trying to do it, as Pastor Mike had said earlier, or Pastor Steve, in kind of a practical, atheistic way. You're kind of doing it without prayer and without rest. Okay? We need to be more disciplined in those areas. And as to patience, well, (laughs) we'll never have the patience of Christ because we're not him. But yet we're still asked to be patient towards those who don't fully understand him yet, towards those who are in fear around us, towards those who lack in their faith among us, towards those who aren't serving in the way they should yet. We're to be patient in the same way Jesus was with his disciples, with each other, as we continue to pursue doing God's will, God's way. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for what we've learned of the person and the posture and the patience of our Savior in this little sign narrative. I pray that the study of this, we would again be rekindled in our confidence as to who Jesus is as the Son of God. And I pray, Lord, for those who are here who have yet to believe on him, that they would. And that believing on him, they would have life through his name. Father, you know what's in your word to come that we're going to study. It's going to continually amaze us as your children how profound, how profoundly persuasive and and comprehensively anti-God religious unbelief is. We're going to be amazed over and again by people who choose not to believe. Lord, may we be equally amazed at how your grace and mercy has operated in our own lives individually and corporately to, to cause us to believe. Thank you, Lord, for presenting Jesus Christ through the hand of John as the Son of God, upon whom we can confidently believe and turn from our sin and place our faith in him as Savior so that we might have life through his name. In his name we pray.